All right, as Sean said, we're going to be in uh, Ephesians 2. So uh, if you want to open up your Bible, I'm going to read there and uh, then pray. So while you're doing that, happy St. Patrick's Day. Maybe hard to tell. I have green on. Don't come up. Try to pinch me. Walk up. You'll be limping back. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but uh, yeah, I want to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And then pray, and then we'll get started. So, this is what it says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I come to you right now. I thank you that we can gather together, not because we have earned something or worked hard or we are worthy of it, but because you are great and your salvation is great and you are worthy to be praised. You're worthy to be honored remembered. I pray that you will be with us right now. Confess, Lord, that I feel emptied out. I feel weak. But I pray, Lord, that you will speak, that you will use this time to bring yourself glory. So let our hearts be open. Let us not be distracted by the enemy. I pray, Jesus, that you will just rebuke Satan, that you will preserve our time, and let us be encouraged. And let us go out, Lord, ready to be a light into this world. In your name, amen. So we're going to um, hit verses 1 through 7 today, and then, because uh, we just finished chapter 1, uh, I didn't get verses 8 and 9, so I'm a little bitter about two of the famous, most famous verses in all the Bible. But next week, Matthew Moore is going to bring verses 8 and 9, uh, and some more, and enlighten us. So today we're going to start in... Uh, um, chapter 2. And the title, the, the sermon title today is Save Your Ugly Face. So I apologize. It's not meant personally toward any of you. Um, I'll explain what I mean here. So in the 80s, I remember, because I'm old now, I remember when the law was passed that you had to start wearing a seatbelt. So for any of you under 25, this probably sounds really weird, but wearing a seatbelt used not to be cool. Uh, and they didn't even have car seats. Like I just walked around in the back seat of the car. And uh, uh, because my mom loved me. And um, so I know for you, if you're under 25, like you're used to, you grew up in a car seat that was like they could buckle into the shuttle and send you into space. Um, But it used not to be like that. So I remember uh, wearing a seatbelt was not cool. And I remember I was seven, I was living in Texas, that's where I grew up. And I remember when the seatbelt law was passed. And my mom told us we had to all start wearing seatbelts. And uh, we were not down with it at first because we never wore seatbelts. We didn't think it was cool. We thought it was lame. We'd come up with all these bogus arguments, uh, like we didn't want to be strapped to the wreckage. 
when the car, you know, when it went down, we didn't, if we <laughs> drove off into a lake, we didn't want to not be able to unbuckle and drown because that happens a lot in Texas, you know. So, uh, so we come up with all these excuses, but it didn't matter. At the end of the day, we had to start wearing our seatbelt. And I remember there was this uh, advertising campaign that came around in the 80s called Save Your Ugly Face. And it kind of started to turn the tide uh, on, on making seatbelts a little more cool because you could say it to people even when you weren't talking about a seatbelt, you know, as a cut down or whatever. I mean, I didn't do that. I heard about other people doing that, but um, I think it happened. But um, so you could, there, was, there was this whole campaign about save your ugly face, and uh, eventually seatbelts caught on, and now, like, you know, if you tell people you don't wear a seatbelt, it's like telling them you don't recycle. It's really faux pas. People don't like that. So, um, but we're going to see in this passage uh, that we had ugly faces. We had nothing to offer God, and yet he comes in and he saves us. And so before we do that, I want to back up, and I'm glad we read a lot of uh, chapter 1 today. I want to back up into chapter 1 to kind of move into chapter 2. So I'm going to read verses 20 through 23. This is what it says in chapter 1. That he, being God the Father, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand um, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named. So it's a, it's a um, lets us know about Christ's deity. He has the highest name. God has the highest name. Um, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So it's again, it's a, a highlighting the deity of God in Christ. That he's over everything. And the church, we the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we see that we're going to, be, we're going to become um, united with Christ. And so this is a beautiful picture of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And now Paul's going to transition to the ugly picture of who we were. And then he's going to come back around and tell us about why we have hope and what we have to look forward to. So um, it's important for us to, before we start and see who we are, that we make sure we have a good understanding of who God is, that he's the supreme being, that he has always existed um, that he existed before time, he existed before the the material things that we see, the earth and the sun were created, and he didn't he didn't uh, create because he had a need. He was sufficient. God was all sufficient, and he created us out of the overflow of his love, the the overflow of, between God the Father and, and God the Son, and the the overflow the, the Holy Spirit. Creation comes forth. So as I was reading these. Um, this text, verses 1 through 7, kind of several times, it, it seemed to naturally break into three different sections. And so I want to spend some time going through those sections. So the first is verses 1 through 3, which is our total rebellious state that could only end in destruction because we were enemies of God. And then verses 4 through 6, the miraculous saving work of God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We'll see them kind of this, this, the work is miraculous itself, and we'll see them kind of intertwined. And then verse 7 is the crescendo. It's, it's what everything is leading up to, what our purpose is, that we must fulfill, that we will fulfill the purpose of our creation, which is to party, this eternal party with God. It's going to be turned up. It's going to be awesome. And so um, we're going to, I always let Robin read my sermons um, just to make sure there's nothing that, you know, doesn't need to be cut out that's, that shouldn't be in there. And, uh, or, you know, she gives me good ideas too. So 
we were, she read it, and she was like, it is really good, but the first part is really depressing. And I was like, well, I know. Did you read the verses? Like, it, it's, not, it's not a happy, it is depressing. But it turned around. She's like, no, it does turn around. I feel really hopeful at the end, but I'm just saying the first part's depressing. So uh, just kind of hang in there. It, it's going to get better. Um, I did have somebody after the first sermon come up and tell me they're still depressed. And so I, clearly they didn't listen after verse 3. They just, I don't know where they went. <laughs> don't zone out. Stay in it. It's worth it till the end. All right. Um, so, verse 1, short, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul is making it very clear that before Christ, we were spiritually dead. And dead people don't have any hope. There's no, uh, you know, if somebody's had trauma, but they're still alive, there's hope that you can, you can resuscitate them or heal them. But if, if you're dead, it's over. There's not, you know, there's not anything that can be done. It's too late to fix your situation. There's no, you know, spiritual eating plan or spiritual physical therapy or spiritual surgery. We're dead. We're, we're born spiritually dead, and we'll see in a minute what that means, and so there's no hope for us and um, without Christ. So as I was thinking about this verse, I was thinking about um, something that happened when I was growing up, and uh, we, I, I grew up, we had a lot of dogs growing up. Some of them were mutts. Some of them were uh, purebred dogs. But um, I grew up in the, in the country, and one problem that you have when you live in the country, especially in Texas, is um, coyotes. Coyotes are a nuisance. Um, probably some scientists somewhere here can tell us why they're good, but in my opinion, they'd just all be wiped out, and we'd all be better off. So we lost a couple dogs to coyote attacks, and uh, we had a lot of dogs, but one of the best dogs we ever had, his name was Magnum, and he was a Rhodesian Ridgeback, and he was this this big, strong, powerful, lean dog, and he was great with us as a family, but he was fiercely protective. I mean, we, I could like slap him in the face or ride on him, and he didn't do anything, but if you're not part of the family, you needed somebody with the family with you, so um, I want a couple of stories. So one, um, again, before technology changed, people used to actually walk around and read the meter on your house to see how much, you know, electricity you would use, and so twice the meter reader came to our house and we found him pinned up against the house by the dog. Like, like he's, he's, his back is on the house. The dog's paw, there's a paw here and a paw here. And the dog's face is like right in his face growling. And he's just like, you know, just like pale and petrified. And uh, in this like high-pitched voice, like, can you call off your dog? And, and, you know, as soon as we said his name, he would kind of wag his tail and run over to us and it was fine. Um, but for this guy, it was not fine. Uh, there was another time my dad, one of his friends was coming over and nobody was outside and he went to open the car door and he gets to the car door about halfway open and the dog jumped up and pushed the car door back shut with his paws on the door and just like looking at him growling. And again, my dad would come out and call him off and, and everything would be fine. Well, we had this, uh, little dog before we got Magnum named Angela. She was a little dachshund, you know, I don't even think she weighed 15 pounds, but, uh, Magnum and, and Angela were really close and um, they were buddies. And one day, we were, uh, we were at home, and Magnum is out on the front porch, and he's going crazy. He's going insane. So my dad goes out there to look, and Angela is on in front of our door. Uh, she's bleeding, and she's unconscious. She got attacked by a coyote. So my dad grabs her. He throws her in the truck. He speeds off to the vet. Well, then the vet's able to save her. So he comes home a few hours, in our house, we didn't have a garage. We had a carport and then a walkway and then our house. And when my dad pulled into the carport, 
on the walkway, like right in front of our front door, is Magnum. He's sitting down, you know, like dogs do, like chest out. And he wasn't smiling, but if he, you know, dogs can't smile. But if he could smile, he'd even smiling. He's just sitting there so proud. And next to him is the dead coyote. He went, yeah, he went and he found the coyote and he killed him. And then he dragged him back and put him right in the front door. So we had to like walk over him to get in the house. So we would know that, you know, he took care of business. And so I was thinking about this verse. It connects in a second, I promise. It's not just a good story. I was thinking about this verse and, it, you know, with Angela, now we didn't love the coyote. If he was still alive, we probably would have shot him, but he was dead. So with Angela, she was still alive. So there was hope. So, you know, my dad took her to the vet. The vet was able to save her, patch her back up, give her some medicine. And she lived uh, on for a while until my brother ran over her in his truck. <laughs> anyway, that part doesn't relate. Uh, but the coyote, the coyote, come back, come with me here. The coyote was dead. The coyote is dead. There is no hope for the coyote. Even if we wanted to save the coyote, Magnum ended it. It was done. And that's where we are. We are the coyote in the story. But unlike the coyote, we're going to get real spiritual life. So now that everybody's really paying attention, let's go on to verse 2. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 1, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul goes on to explain, not only were we dead, but we were God's enemies. So we were not benign toward God in our deadness. We were not um, indifferent toward God in our deadness. We were specifically God's enemies. So we were, we were pursuing um, we'll go on in verse 3 and see we were pursuing passionate. We were pursuing things with vigor that are against who God is. And so we need to make sure that we have this picture of who we were when we were dead toward God because um, we don't need to picture God as putting us under his eternal wrath because we didn't deserve it or because God is a bully or because he has singled us out. Um, in fact, Scripture makes it clear that God is not even, that God is sinless and He's holy. But not only that, He's He's not even able to tempt us with sin. So James one thirteen, this is what James tells us: Let no one say when he is tempted, "I am being tempted by God," for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So that is who we are. We deserve God's eternal punishment. We deserve to be under his wrath because of how we acted. And sometimes it can be easy, I think, especially in our culture, um, to think that you can be benign toward God, that it's not a binary decision where either you are you are his child or you are his enemy. Um, but there's nobody that can work themselves out of it or who can overcome it. Um, there's no way to, to say, I'm not going to pursue either life or death. Um, there's not an option C. And we have to be really careful that we're not lulled into thinking that there is an option C where, you know, we don't have to be God's children, but we also don't have to be 
um, you know, eternally separated from him. So the reality is that um, we do become his children, but not because we deserve it. But we're going to see because of the great love that he has for us, he's going to make us his children. And, And seeing that we're turned from God's enemies into his children and, and the work that he does that should motivate us um, not only to love him more, but to, but to kind of have the overflow and have that flow out of our hearts onto other people. So um, let's go on into verse 3. We're going to see more about who we were. So um, the, uh, the spirit that is, I'm going to back in verse 3, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So part of the reason that we don't have the option to not not be in between toward God is because of how we're born. So we were naturally created to fellowship with God and to commune with him. And God used to literally come and, and walk and talk with Adam and Eve before sin came into the world. But once sin came into the world, then that, that confirmed our rebellious state. It basically imputed sin into all of uh, humankind. So all men and women. It basically imputed that sin toward all of us. And so verse 3 is very clear um, when it says, among whom we all once lived. The all there does not give room for exceptions. It doesn't give room for people to be able to say, I, I, I wasn't born under the curse of sin, or I can get myself out of this without God. Um, because not only were we born under it, but we actually embrace it. The, the deadness of our spirituality, we embraced running from God. This is what Paul tells us in Galatians. There are a lot of places in the, uh, in the New Testament where you get these lists of what it means to set yourself up against God. And in Galatians uh, 5, 19 through 21, this is what Paul tells us. Now the works of the flesh, or the works kind of our natural state, our natural deadness, uh, our enemy, uh, our soul setting ourselves up against God. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, which is worshiping anything other than God. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul is reminding that when we, that's who we were, that's who we are naturally, pre-Christ, pre-Christian, pre-Christ saving us, that we pursue those things with, with passion, that we want to chase after those things. That was not a complete list, but it but it includes a lot of the things that fit, you know, things that we desire apart from Christ that fit under that. Now, in verse 4, he's going to turn the direction of the discourse from rejection um, of us rejecting God to God coming in and loving and saving us, basically taking our ugly faces and saving them. And so verse 4, it shifts a little bit. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So the but, there's two things here. But God, we get this stark contrast that we've been hearing about how we are, but we're getting ready to hear about how God is. 
and it's different. It's going to be different. And we get this idea of him being rich in mercy. So we're going to talk about this, this how does kind of lavishness of his wealth. Um, and so the, I want to connect that back again to verse 1 because um, Paul does a good idea there for reminding us how kind of rich and, and lavish and abundant Christ is. So in verse uh, 7 through 8 of chapter 1, it says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So we get this idea of God being having this um, rich grace, this la- lavishing it upon us, being rich in mercy. And all of these ideas imply this kind of immense wealth and indulgence. So this, this almost like uh, innumerable you know, treasury. And we're going to see later in, um, in verse 7, he actually uses the word immeasurable, meaning you can't even measure how rich and beautiful and gracious God is. And so um, it's this idea of kind of endless, endless uh, wealth. And I just um, finished reading a book by the guy who used to be the head international hostage negotiator for the FBI. Very low stress job this guy had. And so there, to give you an idea, there are 10,000 employees of the FBI, and there's only one lead international hostage negotiator. And so this guy's job all over the world, he, he talks about cases he dealt with in the U.S., in the Philippines, in Haiti, and other parts of the world. Um, this guy's job is when somebody has been kidnapped to try to get them back safely for as little money as possible. <laughs> and so, um, and if we, when you read the book, some of the cases work out great. Uh, there was one case in Haiti where the, they were demanding $150,000 and he got the uh, aunt back for about $4,700. Uh, there were some cases where the family didn't have to pay anything, but there were also other cases where people died, and um, it was not a successful negotiation. And so as I was reading that book, you become acutely aware of um, just the depravity of sin, but also just the, how small and limited we are. And it's the exact opposite here with God. Um, the idea of Romans 5.20 can help us here. So Paul wants us to make sure that we Understand, we're fully saved by the rich grace and mercy. And this is what he says. um, Now the law came to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So there's this idea of every time there's sin, bang, sin, grace is there. Sin, bang, grace, bang, grace. You know, so no matter what happened, what happens, what what we're able, because we're going to be living under the curse of sin until we're in glory with Christ, that no matter how much there is there, that grace will not be exhausted. It cannot be exhausted. So again, it points to how immeasurable God is and how great is it, great he is. And we see that also, not only with it saying him being rich in mercy, it says, but because of the great love with which he loved us. So there's this idea of this huge, great love. That's why God is going to come to us. Um, so why would he save us? Because we're his enemies. And, and we're rejecting him. Why would he have anything to do with us? Why wouldn't he just throw the book at us and, and give us what we deserve? It's because of his great love. He's going to come in. And we need to make sure that we have a good idea of um, what mercy is before we go talk about what grace is. And so mercy is he spares us from what we deserve. He spares us 
from what we've earned, essentially, which is the eternal separation from him, the eternal punishment, the, the eternal, essentially, void of not being with God. He spares us from that. So that's what we deserve. And he basically commutes that sentence and, um, you know, excuses us and allows us to come to him. So verse 5 is going to pick up on this idea. Uh, but I want to make sure before we, we go to verse 5 that you understand we were not attractive. So this is what verse 5 says. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Let me back up and read 4 and 5 together because I flow. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which, he, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So why did he love us? Was it because we were attractive? Y'all don't hear me now. Was it because we were attractive? No. Was it because we had something to offer him? Was it because we had anything of value? Was it because we were beautiful? The first service was much louder. This is, you guys are supposed to be awake. Did we have anything to offer him? No. Were we pretty? No. <laughs> were we ugly? No. Okay, I was just making sure you're paying attention on that one because there was a lot of no's. So no, we were not. Um, we were dead in our trespasses. We had ugly faces. We were his enemies. And yet, that's what it says in, uh, in verse 5. We were dead in our trespasses. And he makes us alive together with him by his grace. So we talked about what mercy was. We get spared what God should have done to us. But grace is the opposite of mercy. And we need both for it to be a full rescue. Grace is giving us what we do not deserve, which is his eternal riches, with him being the supreme rich, so the, the supreme treasure. So being with Christ, being with God, enjoying him in, the, enjoying him in this increasing, um, in, increasing satisfaction for all eternity. That's the grace we get. So we get removed from something we do deserve, which is terrible, and we get replaced with it, something we do not deserve, which is, which is amazing. It's what we were created for. It's what makes us whole. And so it's a full salvation. And as we go on to verse 6, um, we're going to see so why he saves us from death uh, and how it points to him. So in verse 6, We've been saved by grace, and he raises us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we get, it's, it's the full, not only do we get spared, so God doesn't save us and then he's really aloof from us. God doesn't save us and then he's really distant. He doesn't save us from something bad to turn around and treat us poorly or, to, or save us from something bad to save us into something worse. He saves us, and he gives us himself. And um, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about just the fascination we have with royalty. And anytime you observe something that seems to be common across people and across cultures, um, it's helpful to look and see how that points to God. Um, I actually learned that from Pastor Travis. And just the years that I've known him, um, I've heard him say several times one of the reasons he thinks that we love good stories and especially good redemption stories is because of how we were created and that we, we, you know, Christ was the ultimate redemption story. And so as I was thinking about why do we have a fascination with royalty um, in general, it, it, I think it's because of how we're created, that we're, we're going to become literally sons and daughters of the king. 
And you see this, you know, everywhere. So, you know, if, if you're talking about somebody, a lot of times we'll use royalty terms to highlight who they are. So if you say like, oh yeah, he's the king of fixing cars. That means he's really good at fixing cars. Or she's the queen of making fried chicken. Then, you know, you know, you want to go over there for dinner. So, you know, we see that. And businesses do this too. So there's, you know, Burger King, Tire King, Janet King, Smoothie King, other kings. Um, even with uh, celebrities and sports people, right? So people call LeBron James King James. And Michael Jackson was the king of pop. Elvis was the king of um, rock and roll. And so we like to use this royalty language to denote when somebody's really good at something or we, you know, we really admire something. Um, and people are even fascinated with real royalty. Now, there's not a lot of real royalty left in the world. And the most famous, I'm sure, is, is the UK royalty, um, which people in the UK and even outside the UK are fascinated with, right? If you've been to the grocery store in the last year or two, they're on like half the magazines when you go to check out. Uh, one of them is. Um, and last year, there was a royal wedding, right? So Prince Harry, last May, uh, were there two royal weddings? Okay, there are two royal weddings. Okay, Princess... Who? Eugenie got married. Okay. <laughs> if you want to know more, talk to Sarah afterward. Uh, so there was there were two royal weddings, but the one I was thinking of was the one between Prince Harry and Meghan Merkel. I think is that how you say her name? Markle. Markle. Okay. Urkel. Markle. Uh, so. The, so they got married, and this is the first time I can remember in recent history. That a, that a UK prince, princess, king, queen married somebody who was not a Brit, right? She's American. And not only is she American, she's multi-ethnic, and her great, 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 four greats grandfather was born a slave. And he was able to get his freedom, and now one of his ancestors is a literal princess, right, um, in, in the UK. And so as I was thinking through her story, um, even though it's, a, it's an earthly story, it helps us and that we were born as slaves, and yet we get redeemed. And I was thinking about, uh, there's a Tadashi song I like called Riot. And he has a, a line in there that says, a slave on the track, and sin is the pimp, son. And it's this idea that we're born under slave, we're born under sin, we can't get out, it treats us poorly, it's our pimp. But then God comes in, and he rescues us, and he makes us his sons and his daughters. And so, um, but not only does he rescue us, um, from what we had, now we have something to look forward to. So we have hope in this life, but the purpose, the reason, the thing we look forward to is the party that's coming, the party that's coming in heaven. And this is verse 7. It points to us. It says, so we'll back up in verse 6. He raised us up with him, with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So we become part of Christ. We become God's sons and daughters so that in the coming ages, looking forward, in the coming ages, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so this is why we exist. This is why we're here as people, as humans, as disciples, as followers of Christ. We exist to bring glory to God, and we're going to get to spend all eternity doing the thing we were created for. It's going to be this eternal amazing party. It's going to be turned up in heaven. It's going to be awesome. And um, the word immeasurable is really helpful here because it's hard for our minds to get around the idea of things without limits. 
eternity, um, the riches of, of God, the riches of Christ. We think of things sometimes uh, without limits, but they actually have limits, right? So if you're talking about uh, grains of sand, people will say, oh, you can't count them. Well, there, there is, it's a finite measure. There actually are a certain amount of grains of sand, and God can count them. Um, or people will say that, like, hair on your head, or in my case, it'd be on my body. But, you know, that God can count that, and uh, it's amazing, right, that he would know how many hairs are on each of your heads, right? Um, and so there's this idea that even with the things that we can't count, they seem to kind of overwhelm our mind, but eternity is going to be this moment-by-moment increasing of pleasure and joy in Christ, and it's never going to end. Every moment is going to be better than the one before because we're going to understand more of who God is, and we're going to see more of who his beauty, and we're, and we're going to be more satisfied. We're going to be fulfilling more of what we were actually created to do. And so it'll, it'll bring glory to him, which is what we're created to do, and it'll bring satisfaction to our heart, and it'll be this increasing um, thing that will never end. And sometimes it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. So, um, but yeah, so may we live knowing that this is our purpose. May we live this way. May we live ready to party. And may we live turned up. All right, I want to pray. Um, I'm going to read, if you'll uh, pray with me, I'm going to read this Puritan prayer about the Savior. I found really encouraging. So Father, we, we offer this prayer to you. Thou hast given me a Savior. Produce in me a faith to live by him, to make him all my desire all my hope, all my glory. May I enter him as a refuge, build on him as my foundation, walk in him as my way, follow him as my guide, conform to him as my example, receive his instructions as my prophet, rely on his intercession as my high priest, obey him as my king. May I never be ashamed of him or his words, but joyfully bear his reproach, Never displease him by unholy or imprudent conduct. Never count it a glory if I take it patiently when buffeted for a fault. Never make the multitude my model. Never delay when thy word invites me to advance. May thy dear son preserve me from this present evil world so that its smiles never allure, nor its frowns terrify, nor its vices defile, nor its errors delude me. May I feel that I am a stranger and a pilgrim on earth, declaring plainly that I seek a country, my title to it becoming daily more clear, my meetness for it more perfect, my foretaste of it more abundant, and whatsoever I do, may it be done in the Savior's name. Amen.